listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Skiles. Skiles? Is that, that, is that a, a new one? It's been a is while. That, is that it's one actually that an old done one. Before? Yeah, it's an old nickname. Yeah. Yeah. I got a question for you today. Okay, what is it? <laughs> Color my hair? <laughs> Did you dye your hair recently? <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, what website do you visit the most and why? The website I visit the most. <clears throat> the text in, text and Canon Institute one might be it. Yeah? Yeah. I always check what they release because it's super interesting. Um, I mean, I guess you have to say YouTube, right? Yeah. <clears throat> in a sense, but I don't like saying that. Is this like over the course of a lifetime or is this... Recent, I found a, a, a website I've been visiting a lot recently. Yeah, that which, I think is my new favorite one. Which one? So I, I didn't know this. Shamefully, I did not know this because I am a graduate of the institution of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where the notorious Stephen Wellam, who we were yeah. just talking about, mm-hmm. is a professor. And um, so he, along with some other scholars, started a website goodness, probably last year. And it's called Christ Overall. And they do long-form essays. They have a podcast, hmm. all sorts of good stuff. And I've been eating it up, man. It's really good. And uh, it kind of is a, they, they follow, it, it's a Kuypernian sort of approach. Um, I mean, it's intended to be theologically deep, but uh, to help engage the culture with good theology. And uh it's just really good, so I've been enjoying that lately. I go, awesome. I go, I'll go, I go with that. Check it out. Yeah, Christ overall, it's a pretty looking website too. They did a good job on the design, and uh, there's lots of articles by different scholars that they do. And the podcast is kind of nice because they have the scholar who wrote the long form article read the article, so you can listen to the article, and then they do a podcast with a few people discussing the article. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been good lately. So awesome. I don't know what else other than that. Probably, probably uh, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary books, WTS books. <laughs> yeah, their, their bookstore. Oh yeah, go there just to see. Yeah, check <laughs> see check the new releases. Out. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the uh, no, I, I really like heritage books too. Reformation heritage books. That's like Beaky Joel Beaky's. Oh yeah, yeah. Bookstore. So, anywho, it's awesome. Sometimes I check signature books. Yeah. Some Mormon. Yeah. Mormon book. Yeah. There's a lot of good books from yeah. signature. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all right. Well, okay. <laughs> let's talk about hair colors and all sorts of good stuff like that. Yeah. You may be wondering why we're talking randomly about hair colors. It'll come up. I'm It'll sure. come up. It'll come up. Hopefully. Lord willing. I hope for your sake, dear listener, <sighs> yes. that it'll come up. Yes. Okay. We are looking today. At 2 Corinthians 8 to 13. So we're going to be finishing out 2 Corinthians. And the subtitle for the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum on this one is God Loveth a Cheerful Giver. And uh, the LDS wards will be looking at this material from September 18th to the 24th. And we're going to jump on into it and just kind of walk section by section through this curriculum today. And we've got a few things we want to make comments on that are not in the Sunday school curriculum in particular, but did come up in the seminary manuals as normal. 
So you've got the uh, typical uh, principles language in the uh, top, uh, you know, teach. Uh, maybe you can come up with some ideas that'll help your class members discover principles in these chapters. And then they do the invite sharing thing where they say, here's one way to invite class members to share what they learned from 2 Corinthians 8 to 13. Ask a few of them to write on the board a favorite phrase from their reading and share why these phrases are meaningful to them. So again, you see that reader response sort of thing going on there uh, once again. And uh, yeah, any comments on the front section there, Skylar? Are you ready to jump into it? Let's let's jump into it. Yeah, I, yeah. I will say... I want at some point when they use the words and phrases yeah. to land on uh, Lectio Divina, this new age stuff that's starting to uh, infect the church. So. Yeah. But uh, I think I may have found where they got this stuff from, or maybe it came from a similar spirit. Who knows? Yeah, no, it's always possible. Okay, so let's get into the Teach Doctrine section. And the uh, first subsection is Saints Cheerfully Share what they have to bless the poor and needy is the subsection there. So they're pulling this from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15, and 9, 6 to 15. And both of those passages are Paul encouraging the church in Corinth to give generously. Uh, I'll just read a few verses here, starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, so we get a little bit of the context as we work through this. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is the English Standard Version that I'm using. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he had, uh, had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace." But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act also. And goes on to command some faithful, generous giving. And so we've got the subtitle here saying, Saints cheerfully share what they have to bless the poor and needy. They go on and say in their curriculum, God has commanded his saints to help care for those in need. And passages in 2 Corinthians 8 to 9 can inspire your class members in their efforts. To help them find these passages, you could write on the board questions like, why do we give and how should we give? Half of the class should search for answers in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15, and the other half in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15. You might explain that in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, Paul spoke of the Macedonian saints as examples of generous giving. How might the principles taught by Paul help us to better care for the poor and needy? Okay, let's talk about giving and cash money. Yeah. Um, because that's particularly the emphasis that they have when it comes to giving here. So, Skyler, you got any notes on this that you want to highlight yeah. before we jump into well, in, some stuff? In the in the seminary manual, um, same same deal, 8 and 9, caring for the poor. Jesus Christ cares deeply for all of Heavenly Father's children and invites us to join him in providing for the poor and needy. And... Um, <clears throat> Paul recorded many important teachings about caring for the poor in the Savior's way. 
And it really emphasizes the example of Jesus, right? Example of Jesus. Paul shared the Savior's example to encourage us to provide for the needs of others out of sincere love. Um, just really quickly on that, no, you know, maybe some people will recall that incident with Judas, who was the treasurer for the disciples, right? So he's dealing with the money, mm-hmm. and he's upset over the expensive ointment, right, used to anoint Jesus. Right. Um, you know, so I think this is in Matthew 26. And what does Jesus say back? You know, the poor will always be with you. Mm-hmm. So there's something else going on. They just, I think what they're doing is they're assuming the standard view of Jesus, but just moderately more right, politically yeah. right. In other, in other words, I know there are tons of, especially in the West, right, that has been blessed with great abundance. There are, there's a lot of discomfort about what the Bible has to say about money and what Jesus has to say about money and the rich. Um, granted. That being said, to also ignore this also shows that, you know, there's, it's almost like there's a visible economy, you know, of budgets and all this, mm-hmm. but there's an invisible economy of, um, and I'm, of course, getting this from Joshua Mitchell, of, right, innocence and stain of sin. And, um, and Jesus is here for what, primarily? Not that he has nothing to say about the visible, but the invisible. And I just, you know, it's, they don't in, interact with any of these mm-hmm. at all. Instead, it's just the example of Jesus based on what their image of him, I guess which is just a really nice guy, I guess. And that Paul sh- shared the Savior's example to encourage us to provide for the needs of others. So um, it's not just others. <laughs> like this isn't um, Social yeah. Security for the Roman Empire or Medicaid, Medicare. This is what? This is a gift for a struggling and persecuted church that's uh, Jew-dominated. Mm-hmm. It's largely Jewish. And Paul sees this gift as an example of a one church, not a Jew and a Gentile church coming together, right? And they don't go into any of that either. Yeah. Um, so um, now, if, continuing with their lesson, they they want us to look at passages of Paul, quote unquote, along with the associated Book of Mormon passages. They really want us to compare Paul with the Book of Mormon. And so, and then they, they list the passages in this section, along with passages from Mosiah, Alma, and Moroni, and they line it by desire to give, how much to give, attitude in giving, gratitude to God. And um, they, they do say that it's, you know, the generosity of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, of course, two separate gods, can change us. And um, let me read this Renlund quote, Dale Renlund. Um, each of us has received gifts that we could not provide for ourselves, gifts from our Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, including redemption through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We have received life in this world. We will receive physical life in the hereafter and eternal salvation and exaltation if we choose it. All because of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Wait. If we choose it, all because of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. I just want to point out that's not coherent. Mm-hmm. It can't all be them if they have to get our permission to do it. 
Um, and of course, that doesn't even make sense with the rest of Mormon theology, who has to obey all the covenants and stuff like that. Um, that's not Heavenly Father Jesus Christ doing it for you. So I don't know. It's just this, once again, this desire to throw in grace somehow and to just see where it sticks. And it just, it just doesn't if you just think about it for a minute. Yeah. And then he finishes the quote, Every time we use benefit from or even think of these gifts, we ought to consider the sacrifice, generosity, and compassion of the givers. Uh, reverence for the givers does more than make us grateful. Reflecting on their gifts can can and should transform us. Okay. And then it's there's a heading, caring for those in need is part of the work of salvation and exaltation. And um, it 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 refers to a section that's not a minor point to no, make no. by the way it's um, part of the work of we, we yeah we continue yeah. to highlight the list of things that must be done in order to reach exaltation which is something that lds people on the interweb in chat groups that i see on uh, various social media platforms continue to want to deny we don't yeah. have to do things to get to exaltation it's grace and it's like okay well, yeah, they uh, their manual says otherwise yeah. for the current year. Precisely. Which I guess we can't quote their manual from the current year. Yeah, so. yeah. In fact, um, just to, for some, um, we're going to do a bonus episode on what is Mormon doctrine yeah. and just kind of outline all the standard ways that people try to get away from the obvious teaching of the LDS church for yep, so long. Yep. You know? so, so why, why don't you, or do you have more that you want to hit on this real quick before I ask you to fill something in? Um, just, just one thing, just yeah. the, to, they, um, sorry, the general handbook, it does the, the, for the manual, they say, why do you think we need to care for those in need if we are to be saved and exalted? So they, they double down on the point. Yeah. Why do you think we need to do this? And then how do you think caring for those in need helps barriers to their spiritual progression? Yeah. Um, and in the manual, they do say caring for those in need includes serving and ministering to individuals, families, and communities, uh, sharing resources, including church assistance with those in need, and then helping others become self-reliant. Um, they do cite a Holland quote saying poverty, um, you know, it can be material, but can also be other things. And... Um, you know, the, the manual does say caring for the poor does not always involve giving money, but n no recognition of how the Bible wrestles with wealth and poverty at yeah. all. Yeah. It just seems to be funneled through their church system. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's fill in some of the practicals here that yeah. maybe in particular some of our uh, creedal Christian or evangelical Christian listeners may not know. Um, what is the expectation for giving within the LDS church? Wow. Uh, well, ten percent of all that comes in, okay, is the ten percent of your gross income, essentially. Well, I remember hearing um, a teacher, um, in fact, uh, institute teacher, say it depends on whether you want to be blessed more or less. Yeah, uh, whether you <laughs> tithe the gross or the so ten um, percent is the minimum. Yeah, in, or ten percent off the net exactly if, if you're being cheap. And then 10% yeah. off the gross. If you want to be more blessed. Be more blessed. Yeah. According to an institute okay. teacher, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. how he literally put it. Okay. Is, so 10% yeah. off your net income, though, is the minimum expectation. Minimum expectation. In order on to... Tithing. Yeah. On tithing. In order to be considered temple worthy. Yeah. Right. So you, you cannot have a temple recommend card 
as a member of the LDS church, unless you're giving at least 10%. How do they know if you're giving 10%? Uh, so you meet with the bishop, if they do it the same way as they did when I was in, yeah. uh, typically around New Year's, okay. uh, to show your tax forms and, and basically demonstrate that. Yeah, and they call that tithing settlement, mm-hmm. if I remember right. Yep, yep you're right. Um, and uh, just make sure that all your giving is in place yep. and you're at your 10%. And if you're mm-hmm. at your 10% and you're still considered temple worthy in all the other necessary ways, you can continue to carry your temple recommend card. Um, right. And again, you aren't getting into exaltation unless you are temple worthy and are doing the temple work and things like that. So yeah. th- this is not something that... It's optional no. within the LDS church. If you to believe give 10%, it, percent you yeah. you must give uh, at least ten percent. Right. right. If you believe it, or at least see your connections in the community is worth still having a temple recommend, even if you don't believe it. Yeah. Because yeah, people need to realize these temple ordinances are seen as essential for exaltations. Yeah. You know, it's not. You're right. Like, okay, salvation may be a given in a sense in Mormonism. But the degree of exaltation, the degree of glory that your body is at the resurrection is dependent upon making first those covenants and then keeping them. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you're not allowed in without paying a full tithe. Yep. So this is one particular area that I know at least the ex-Mormon world out there and a lot of disgruntled Mormons are extremely frustrated uh, toward the church about yep. is the money situation. And uh, of course, there was a big 60 Minutes episode that came out a few months back that uh, televised on national TV. And that was the place where a whistleblower who used to work in the church finance office finally, I think that was when he finally came public or was he already public before and just... At least more public. Just more public. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he he really unveiled the just one particular account that the LDS church holds and uh, it's an investment account that's valued, I don't know, I've seen $100, $150 billion um, in this investment account. And as far as we know, there could be other accounts. This is just the main one that he's uncovered. And so this has become a bit of a, a, uh, a fiasco because uh, there's apparently lawsuits being filed against the church and all, all sorts of concerns uh, around this. And I'm imagining that LDS people will be a little bit all over all over the board as far as their opinions on this go. Uh, some people probably connect this to their eschatology, you know, in terms of being prepared for the latter days and having a huge bank of money, which of course, if it's all in investments, I don't know how much good it's going to do if the economy fails. But uh, in any case, um, they they just have this mass of money, but they are classified as a nonprofit organization, uh, within the United States. So they're a nonprofit organization that's taking the tithes of their church members and instead of putting those things into uh, particular uh, things that are meant to benefit the public. the public, it's going into business investments. And uh, of course, if you live in Salt Lake City, you know, as you walk around, you're like, the, the church owns tons of land. Uh, the church owns most, it feels like most of downtown Salt Lake City. Um, there's a huge state-of-the-art mall that spans four blocks that the church built and owns. And uh, it just seems like, you know, they they own 
tons and tons of things out here, but not just out here, also around the world. And, uh, and their nest egg continues to grow. Um, there's articles that have been coming out saying, could this be the first trillion dollar organization in the next, uh, 10 to 15 or so years as this continues to grow and expand. Um, so this, the, the money issue within the LDS church has been, uh, pretty, pretty much the most pressing issue that I hear people talking about around here relative to, uh, just disgruntled things going on. So, I don't know if you have any thoughts on all of that, Skylar, that, you know, just your reaction to some of that. But, uh, of course, the concern is the church is putting things like this in here. You need to give cheerfully. And it says saints cheerfully share what they have to bless the poor and needy. Um, and there's an, there's one aspect, let's just be honest, where we have to admit that the LDS church does have benevolence organizations that they've established to help the poor and needy. Um, but some of that may not even be coming out of the tithes and offerings, right? It, yeah. it could be coming out of the additional giving that happens on fast Sunday, mm-hmm. which would amount to half a billion dollars worth of giving. Um, yeah. so yeah, I thoughts. I, so I wish I were a little more specifically prepared on the issue. So I, I can't get into specifics, but, um, I think it's clear that e- even like an issue like, do they have, does the LDS church have a paid ministry, right? All growing up, I heard about, you know, no, paid ministers, those are the other people, you know, people they get money, earn money, you know, in church. And, you know, they'd even cite the New Testament about, you know, Peter's warning about, you know, filthy lucre or whatever. It turns out they are paid. And you don't, you know, it's just yeah. until somebody leaks one of these tax forms, I think it was hiring. All of the whatever. general authorities, yes. anyway, are making yeah. six and I was lied to, and that's the word, lied to my whole life until I found that out. Where yeah. it's like, wait, what? I've been using this as a benefit for the church, you know, because a lot of local leaders, they're doing it pro bono, right? I mean, yep. they, they're not. Um, and so it, it, I just think coming out of that and then being a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church um, is totally different. I mean, like, uh, at the OPC, we literally have a meeting where even the salary of my pastor, right. It's line item, you know, (laughs) and we can, anybody can object. Anybody can speak. The whole meeting is recorded. And then at the meeting, at the end of the meeting, they read back the notes and say, "Do, do all agree? Does anyone want amendments to the record? We send it to Presbytery. So it's, it's just completely transparent. We see exactly the money coming in. We know exactly where it's going. Yep. And yet, most LDS, and including most people who leave the LDS church, mm-hmm. they maintain this impression that Christian ministers are all in it for the money. Yep. And unfortunately, in the post-Mormon community, what they say is, and also the LDS general authorities are. Yeah. And they don't. They still don't realize, like, no, no, no it's pretty different in the Christian world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so, I yeah, I think. Honestly, the the buying up of you know the, as as the membership clearly, at least around here, at least in the West, is going down. They're building more and more temples, and for those who have seen um, Going Clear, the documentary on Scientology, mm-hmm. when the membership started to tank in Scientology, they started buying up land and buildings all over the world. I yeah. think that might be part of what's going on here. Yeah, it, because it can give the illusion of growth mm-hmm. with actually the reality of. Uh, tanking in terms yeah. of membership yep. and it's, they're more financially secure even as you know, their membership. Shrinks. Yeah. 
I'll, I'll run something by and, uh, you know, one podcast that we do not recommend, but <laughs> helpful things sometimes comes out of it is the Mormon stories podcast with John DeLynn. And, uh, this was a source from, from that podcast, but they had a stake, uh, clerk right in, which a stake would be a five to 10 LDS wards yeah, roughly totally sure. put together. Uh, yeah. And so the clerk is the one who collects all of the tithing contributions for the stake and then sends those up to Salt Lake City, uh, which is the church headquarters, of course. And so this stake clerk writes in and he said, to provide you some figures for my stake, we take in on average $230,000 in tithing contributions every month. We receive from Salt Lake City a mere $9,000 per quarter. This equates to $2.76 million in contributions annually. So this one stake takes in uh, $2.76 million and uh, just from their stake. And then they only they send that into Salt Lake City and they only receive back $36,000 to do their ministry and thing like, things like that. So the, this person did the math and said, we're only getting 1.3% of what we give back in order to do the ministries that we're trying to do here. And, uh, he, he was, he's frustrated by this because, you know, he's saying that we, we have to spend a lot of out of pocket money in addition to our ties and offerings just to put on the kids camps and, you know, do some of the, just the basic things that are required or expected yeah. in this. So there's a lot of LDS people that are frustrated because the, the point that you made, even in what you talked about with y'all's business meetings, um, in your, uh, Presbyterian church is that nobody knows where this money's going except that now we know it's going to for-profit investments, apparently, right? <laughs> At least in, uh, part. in large part. <laughs> but they're only getting 1.3% back for yeah. their stake in their wards to do the ministry that they're supposed to do with. Now, they don't facilitate, I would imagine, a lot of the, the uh, churches um, – giving to the poor and things like that through the ward budgets and whatnot. So yeah, we understand that that's uh, probably different line items with the way that the LDS church is set up. But in any case, the point is there's not, there's not vulnerability. There's not openness no, about not where the money's being sent, how much money's being spent on, no. on this or that or the other. We, you don't ever know how much they spend on a temple. You know, they yeah. just say we're building a temple. Uh, if you go and tour their conference center in downtown Salt Lake city, you know, we got it. We got, uh, I, I've taken a few different tours. Now I usually get the really young sister missionaries and it's much more scripted um, in the sense of talking about various doctrines and beliefs that they have as you walk around the building. The first time I went and took a tour there, I got it from a, a senior missionary or a retiree missionary and there wasn't a script at all. And he, the only thing he wanted to talk about was uh, how nice everything was. So he was pointing <laughs> out the, uh, you know, imported mahogany walls yeah. and the, the polished pure granite floors and yeah. the, uh, the painting that was hanging on the wall that used to hang in Napoleon Bonaparte's palace. And, uh, you know, like this, that, yeah. and the other, and just, I just asked him the I was like, how, how much did this cost? Yeah. And he's like, we don't know. It doesn't matter. You know, we, we love it sort of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you just imagine b billions of dollars for the, the yeah. conference center building there. Right. 
I'm sure. But the point isn't that like the church can't spend money and the no. point isn't that there shouldn't be giving. That's where the ex-Mormon community they can overdo goes it. wrong. Is they they the thing I always hear them saying is the church doesn't need your money. The church doesn't need your money. You know, I saw one thing saying that the uh the church's expenditures were somewhere in the range of seven billion dollars a year and their um their investment income interest income now is like 11 billion so they're like yeah. making more money back in interest income than what they're taking in in ties and offerings so they're like they literally don't need your money they can function without you giving anything <clears throat> sort of a thing and so now there's this whole push of the church doesn't need your money but guess what if you want to have your temple recommend you better yeah. keep giving your 10% and get the blessings all and, the yeah, heavenly and get blessings. all the, all the blessings you and need the, to obey the law yeah yeah, yeah that's right um, yeah. Now, that just differs from the way that we handle finances in some ways, and in some ways it doesn't, because we would look at these different passages and we would encourage cheerful giving. We would yeah. encourage uh, believers using their finances with an understanding that God owns all of your money. It doesn't belong to you in the first place, and the things that you ought to use your money for are to advance the kingdom of God, to love your fellow man, and of course, you know we believe in wise investment principles and things like that. Uh, we don't in our church teach that every Christian should live an impoverished life and and live on as little means as they can. We think that there's ways that you can enjoy the common gift graces of of God in this world and uh, and things of that nature. I mean, we're sitting in an air conditioned room right now that is being paid for uh, so that we can be more comfortable and we don't deny that. We don't think that that's wrong or sinful. So we don't go to that extreme, but we do think that uh, Christians should give radically and generously insofar as they are able uh, for the purposes of God to advance in the world. Now here's where some of the departure is going to come and what we believe that money ought to be used for. So in an evangelical Christian context, one of the things we're going to prioritize in the giving of the church is the ministry of the word. And the reason is because we believe that the church primarily advances through the proclamation of the gospel, through the ministry of the word. And so we pay clergy as much as we are able to devote themselves to the study of the word um, and to prayer, to to these, these matters that other people working may not have as much time to devote their time and attention to. And the reason is because we want God's word to be taught accurately. We want it to be taught faithfully. And so it's not uncommon in evangelical Christian churches to have pastors who are trained, who have gone to school for years. Learn ancient who, languages. Who have learned languages to be able to do what Paul tells Timothy to do, which is to rightly divide the word of truth. And so uh, we we don't see that as being an unimportant task you know, to pay clergy. We actually see it as being one of the more important things we can do with our money to ensure that God's word is being proclaimed rightly so that right doctrine is being upheld and protected and that somebody is given the time to think through those sorts of things. And uh, ironically enough, you know, Paul even has to defend himself against the Corinthians because they're being so, uh, so uh, stingy that uh, they're not giving money even for the poor. And, uh, and so he makes the point uh, in particular in uh, chapter 11 verses eight and nine, he says, uh, well, I'll start in verse seven. He says, 
Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? He said, I came to you and you didn't give me any money, right? Because some of these false teachers could have been twisting the narrative saying, Paul just wants your money. And uh, Paul's like, no, I I came and preached the the gospel free of charge to you. I, I didn't charge you anything for it. And then he actually says in verse eight, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So the Givers in Macedonia are not just giving for the poor. They're giving for the ministry of the word. They want Paul to be able to go and preach the word. And Paul is basically saying, Corinthian church, you should follow in that likeness. You should care about the things of God more than you care about the things of this earth. And you should want the gospel to advance and uh, not listen to the false teachers who are putting these lies in your head that I am just an apostle out for money because I'm not charging you any money for this. Uh, But you do see Paul have a consistent theology of giving that supports the uh, support of ministers who are ministering the word, uh, because God's word advances on the feet of those proclaiming the gospel. And we want to make sure we're doing that rightly and accurately. Now, what's the balance to that so that we don't end up with a bunch of Benny Hints who you've mentioned a bunch of times? Well, the balance is that one of the qualifications for an elder in uh, 1 Timothy 3 is that he's not a lover of money. Um, so if, if you ever have a pastor who is trying to just, just loves money, loves stuff, loves spending, loves, you know, getting as much, you know, money in his pockets as he can, he's not qualified to do this. Um, yeah. you, you can't have a pastor who is obsessed and loves money. Um, and so that, that there are guards there in place where it's very clear that a pastor shouldn't just be trying to get rich off the ministry. Uh, but should be well supplied for. Paul would even use words like a double portion. I mean, you, you should give generously to the the ministry of the word, but uh, that person receiving that had better not love that money. He better yeah. be a generous giver as well, right? Use it wisely. Yeah. Yeah. I So I have a little bit of on fast offerings here. Yeah. Just a couple loose ends. Okay, so I was told they're not a paid ministry. They are. And yet... They can't even rightly. They don't preach. Yeah. Now, probably not they, on the they, level of like bishops. No. Right? No. No. Yeah. I mean, sorry. Just I mean the, the top. general authorities. I mean, in fact, yeah. I'll even limit it to the top fifteen. I, I don't know at what point they start. I would assume seventy, but I don't know that. Yeah. Uh, there are people that do. The postwar community is typically who I would go to for all the right. money issues. Yeah. It's not my primary issue. My point is, regardless of how much you're paid, they don't even preach it in English. And they make fun, they, historically, they have made fun of ministers like you, of Jason, for ever taking a paycheck and ever thinking that you're more qualified to preach because of your education. Yep. But they, their education is in what? Law, business, marketing. Like, that's all, that's all it is. Yeah. They, they're not in theology. They don't even care. Yeah. And their talks are a bunch of Oprah Winfrey Hallmark cards. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and here's the thing. I'm not just going to attack them. The LDS people love them. Yeah. And the LDS people love it and apparently more or less happily submit and pay 10% of all that comes in. I will say uh, really quickly on the tithing point, I do think that's changed. I actually think the definition of income has changed since the early church, but they benefit from the people thinking it hasn't. And so I'll just let that be. Uh, Someone like my brother will know what I'm talking about. Okay. 
So fast offerings is another thing that they, they talk about in the seminary manual. So what is that? So it's called the law of the fast and fast offerings. And they say um, both in their t- topics page on their website and in the manual, or sorry, sorry, their um, uh, general handbook, rather, that this blesses both givers and receivers. So it's in the doing that members grow closer to the Lord um, and increase in spiritual strength as they live the law of the fast. And they also strengthen their own self-reliance. So as you give, you'll find out you end up receiving more. um, It says, um, the Savior Jesus Christ taught that we should love our neighbors as ourselves as we sacrifice and serve others as the Savior did. Both the givers and receivers are blessed with compassion, empathy, and love that lead to exaltation in eternal life. There it is. So when is it done? Well, this is actually something that's changed in Mormon history, and this is kind of just an interesting history lesson. Um, so today, right, it can be done at any time, but it's usually done the first Sunday of the month. And we've mentioned testimony meeting, but it's actually fast and testimony meeting, which I, even in it, used to call starve and thankimony meeting uh, because I didn't think it was a real fast. I didn't think these were real testimonies, even when I was in it. But, uh, you know, so typically you go, it, it says in the manual, you go without food or drink for a 24-hour period if you're physically able. But typically people just skip breakfast and lunch and eat dinner. Um, and then the idea is you give the money at least equal in value to the meals not eaten, but if you can do more. As a fast offering, and there's a donation slip specifically for it, it's under the bishop. I'm going to resist the urge to go off on a tangent on the history of what a bishop was in the LDS Church. There's a great book on that that I will put in the show notes. But the idea is under the authority of the bishop, he can send out even deacons in the ward, right, to around 12 years old, um, to go even door-to-door and collect them. They at least used to. I don't know if they've changed that now. Maybe they've gone more online. The idea is that it's it's supposed to go that day to a member of the bishopric, and then they collect it, and they put it in a separate thing. So um, that is a fast day. And then, of course, they're supposed to fast with a purpose, happy countenance, which I thought was funny that they really emphasize. you got to be happy about it, which doesn't that seem like an inverse Pharisaism? You remember, like Jesus says, don't look gloomy on purpose, you know, for, well, okay, apparently you just got to look happy, you know, it's like, anyway, uh, encourage your family members to fast and then attend as a family. And then of course you can fast for other special purposes at other times and, um, pay generously, but don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. And then, uh, teach even your kids, your family to give willingly and cheerfully. Okay, but what's interesting is, um, and Brigham Young claimed this went back to Joseph Smith and his leadership, but there used to be a fast day. It used to be the first Thursday of every month. So this is just a little bit of history to throw in there. And uh, it changed in the mid-1890s. But for Brigham Young, it was an authoritative practice, which is interesting. And... um, uh, it, there's a Brigham Young quote on it and a Franklin D. Richard quote on it that I'll put in the show notes. And um, But what unites all of them, regardless of whether you do it first Thursday or the first Sunday or whatever, is that it's seen as, quote, a fundamental gospel doctrine and a, quote, essential element in the eternal plan of salvation. And um, a lot of LDS sources will cite a quote from the history of the church uh, where Joseph Smith says, and so long as the saints will all live to this principle, so if all the Latter-day Saints live this principle with glad hearts and cheerful countenances, they will always have an abundance. 
And I'm sure the top 15 really feel that abundance. Mm-hmm. So I'll land it there. Yeah. All right. I don't think there's much else to say on giving. <laughs> we just affirm that uh, just much like your Presbyterian church, yeah. the uh, Baptist model is total transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, in our business meetings, all of our members get all the financial reports and they see where every penny that comes in is going. And uh, it's a it's a congregational model of uh, of church membership, meaning the church ultimately votes on how we think that the money should be best used to advance the kingdom. We've got uh, benevolent line items that are meant to help uh, people within our church, outside of our church. We've got missional line items that are meant to help people who are ministering in places in the world that are even more lost than where we are right now. We've got other partnership things that we do to support local ministries and outreaches. Most of the money that we spend is intended toward advancing the gospel mission in the world. And, uh, and of course there's other facility maintenance to take care of the building Mm -hmm. that we meet in, uh, which we try to use as a tool for kingdom advancement as much as we can as well. So anyway, there, there's, there's all that. Right. And, uh, you know, we don't have a huge budget at this little church, but, uh, you know, apparently we get a lot more back than the LDS wards do. So we're <laughs> not as much as they give, but yeah, yeah not, a, not even close as much as they give. But, uh, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> it works out. So, all right. Um, let's move on to the mm-hmm. next section. We got second Corinthians 11, one to four and the subtitle in the LDS cur- curriculum on this is going to be, we should focus on quote, the simplicity that is in Christ, end quote. All right, here's the verses. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4, from the English Standard Version. I wish you would bear me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband, I present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I'm going to keep reading. Indeed, I consider that I am not... That, that's verse 4, by the way, where they say to end, but... Go on. Yeah, keep going. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So Paul is emphasizing his his clear teaching, his the the knowledge that he's imparted to them uh, that has come through the gospel that he preaches. Um, I'm going to stop there, and uh, here's what we got in the LDS curriculum. They say, sometimes church members feel overwhelmed with the demands of life, including what they might see as demands of being a Latter-day Saint, like giving 10%. Paul's counsel about the simplicity that is in Christ from 2 Corinthians 11.3, which I'm guessing, did you ever establish that that's a King James thing that they're picking up I on the simplicity? So, yeah. Yeah. Um 
Perhaps you could read together that verse and discuss what the phrase simplicity that is in Christ might mean. You could also ask class members to imagine that they were invited to write a description of the gospel of Jesus Christ for a newspaper with a limit of 100 words. Give them time to write their descriptions and let them share with each other what they wrote. If they need help, they might refer to John 3, 16 and 17, uh, 3 Nephi 27, 13 to 21, or President Diedrich, or uh, Dieter Eukdorf, I always mess up his name, is it Dieter? I think Dieter. I think Dieter <laughs> F. Uchtdorf. Uh, statement and additional resources. Class members could share ideas about how to simplify oh, our boy. approach to discipleship. Okay, this so this is all about simplifying. This is about simplifying. And so here's the uh, way to simplify your approach to gospel living according to Uchtdorf. Yeah, to living the gospel. Brothers and sisters, Uchtdorf says, living the gospel doesn't need to be complicated. Yeah. Okay, notice already we're going to living the gospel. So... Of course, we've established we're already away from what the gospel is. Yep. Living the gospel doesn't need to be complicated. It's really straightforward. It could be described like this. Hearing the word of God with earnest intent leads us to believe in God and trust his promises. Something we do. The more we trust God, the more our hearts are... By the way, when you say we do, you don't mean credo Christians. No, no, sorry. So, so sorry. The one listening with the intent to something that man uh, does agree. Yes, yes. yeah. So, so maybe I should say they do. Yeah, something they do. The more we trust God, the more our hearts are filled with love for Him and for each other. They do because of our love for because. God. We desire to follow Him and bring our actions in alignment with His Word. Something they do because we love God. We want to serve Him. We want to bless the lives of others and help the poor and needy. Something they do. The more we walk in this path of discipleship, the more we desire to learn the Word of God. The more that they do. And so it goes, each step leading to the next and filling us with ever-increasing faith, hope, and charity. And notice, it's in the step. <laughs> I put in my notes. The filling is in the stepping. Mm-hmm. Each step is what's filling them with faith, hope, and charity. Yep. Which are fruits of the Spirit. Yep. It's beautifully simple, and it works beautifully. <laughs> Brothers and sisters... Uh. If you ever think that the gospel isn't working so well for you, I invite you to step back, look at your life from a higher plane, and simplify your approach to discipleship. Focus on the basic doctrines, principles, and applications of the gospel. I promise that God will guide and bless you on your path to fulfilling li- to a fulfilling life, and the gospel will definitely work better for you. The gospel will work better for you. Uh, so if the gospel, you know, if you tried the gospel out, the gospel's not working. Yeah. Then, uh, then simplify your approach. You know, right. get back to the basics and just keep doing the gospel, and then maybe it'll start to work for you. Yeah. So do, do everything he just listed, which is a ton of stuff. How is that simple? Yeah. And then notice the goal too. Guide God will guide and bless you on your path to a fulfilling life. Yeah. Yeah, so it's okay, all Oprah Winfrey. Uh, yeah, it's all about yeah. f- uh, f- fulfilling yourself, and it's all about finding some system or approach that basically leads to your own happiness. Right, and uh, and so yeah, I mean, you can see why it's not a, a far jump for a lot of young people who just leave the church and just go into the kind of live for yourself mentality that's popular in culture in yeah. a different system. You know, it's kind of that classic, uh, you know, was watching a show with, with my wife and the, the line was, uh, you know, said by one guy, yeah, some people use religion. Some people use meditation. Meditation's always worked for me. So that's, you know, it's kind of like yeah. find what works for you. Well, yeah. And, pragmatism. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, 
I could go more into this talk, but he even says exaltation is our goal. Discipleship is our journey. But you just say it softer. You know, it's like speak softly, but carry a big stick, you know? Mm-hmm. And in the talk title, it works wonderfully. So just what works. Forget what's true. It's got to work. And of course, if you just do all this stuff, then it'll work for you. Yep. You know? And I just because I it's worth it. He gave a talk they cited earlier, too. Let me just read this line to show. Once again, I can tell you one person who has no idea what the gospel is, and that's saying it as charitably as I can, because if he actually does know what it is, um, how is that any yeah. <laughs> that make him look even worse? But um, this is the same guy who, in a talk, um, said, if my thing will work here. Oh, here it is. One of the greatest sermons, this is in a talk called Waiting on the Road to Damascus, and this is right above the header, Our Road to Damascus, you know. Yep. Uh, one of the greatest sermons ever pronounced on missionary work is this simple thought attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness, St. Francis, you know what he didn't say? He said quite a bit. Yeah. He didn't say that. Yep. So it's a fake quote. And number two, Francis of Assisi was known for his preaching. Yep. And by the way, regardless of, you know, the uh, irony of all that, how do you preach the good news without words? Yeah. And indeed, no one could live. Only one person could live the news the gospel is about, and that is Jesus Christ alone. Yep. So there's no angle from which to salvage this error. And hopefully by this point, if you've been following us for a while, we've made this point, I think almost every episode, but there has not been once. You have 15 paid ministers at the top that, you know, don't need degrees or anything. They don't need to learn languages. They're just so spirit-filled and prophetic and have the only priesthood authority on earth today and apparently speak to Jesus, but they can't get this right. I, I don't know how to put it. Yeah. So um, let's talk about what this passage is actually <laughs> about. Yeah. Uh, which is about these false teachers who Paul now clearly identifies as false teachers. He calls them super apostles, but the clear uh, connection he's making is these are false teachers who are going to lead you ultimately away from Christ. And so he says, you know, he is jealous for this church. And of course he knows the church is the bride of Christ and he sees himself as an apostle who did his duty of leading this church to, uh, their bridegroom. And now he kind of flips that analogy and says, I, I feel like the husband here. I, I'm jealous over, over you. I don't want you to fall away. Um, into a false gospel to believe these false these false truths and things like that. So Paul has a real concern and a and a love for this church and doesn't want to see them go astray. That's uh, what he's getting at verse two. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband and present present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And then he goes on in verse three and says, "But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure." devotion to Christ. Paul recognizes that there is a spiritual battle that's Mm -hmm. going on in the Christian life. And uh, this is something that he emphasizes throughout 
the book of, of Second Corinthians and throughout his writings. He sees that Satan is a, is a real spiritual being. He was crafty, and he is seeking to lead people astray, um, to wander off into mist, to wander off into lies, to wander off into uh, things that are going to be destructive to their souls. Uh, there's one commentator that writes on this verse, says, What is similar between Eve's deception and the feared deception of the Corinthians? In both cases, Satan dazzles with what is flashy and immediately attractive in a way that complicates and compromises a guileless and childlike trust in God. What the forbidden fruit was to Eve, the outwardly impressive ministry of the super apostles is to the Corinthians. So in other words, the super apostles, whatever they got going, they've got going that they're flashy and cool and they are admirable. And uh, they they are more enticing than Paul. Paul's a little more boring. He's not as exciting in speech, whatever it may be. It's something along those lines. And uh, is this uh, author in the commentary goes on to say, how will the Corinthians fare against these super apostles? Uh, we also we must also see that eleven three follows the betrothal language language of verse two. Eve's betrayal of God was the betrayal of her truest husband. Likewise, the Corinthians, in being tempted to yield their loyalties to these super apostles, are being tempted to betray their truest husband and loving Lord, Christ Himself. And so it goes on in verse four to say, for if a different spirit. Uh, or sorry, sorry, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaim. So this is the key issue, right? If these super apostles, as good as they sound, as good as their lives look, as enticing as they may be, if they come to you and they're proclaiming a Jesus other than the one that we proclaimed, uh, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Okay, three things there, right? A different Jesus a different spirit, a different gospel than the one that had been accepted from the Apostle Paul. Those are the standards that he's laying down for saying, this is how you know you're not you're not following the right guys if they're leading you away from these fundamental things. Uh, the commentator here that I was looking at goes on to say there's three basic elements of apostolic, apostolic ministry. An apostle job, uh, as Jesus and his work and lordship is proclaimed, those who accept this gospel receive the true spirit. So the, the job of the apostles is to preach the true Christ, to preach the true gospel, to lay those things out so that they know that they are receiving the true spirit. Now the point is, there's other spirits in the world. You know, Paul is a—he's he, not a materialist. He is not a naturalist. He's a supernaturalist. He—he he knows that there are demonic spirits, there are satanic spirits at work in the world, and those spirits look really good. You know, it, some people think you're going to be able to identify a false spirit because it's going to look like the demon movies or something like that. No, 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 no. False spirits look good. They—they they look uh, smooth. They look clean. They look like they're living the kind of lives that good religious people should live. And uh, and so they deceive you by looking like the real deal. And the point is, okay, apostles preach the true Christ, preach the true gospel, and by those things being maintained as right and true, you know that you've got the right spirit. I would just be careful if you're ever going in reverse order. If you're trusting a spirit apart from the preaching of Christ laid down even in Paul's letters to keep the context clear here, or a gospel other than the ones clearly laid down in Paul's letters. And uh, if, if you are, then you've got the wrong spirit is the point going on here. 
And he says, the super apostles turn true ministry inside out at every point, offering a different Jesus, a different spirit, and thus a different gospel. Uh, how so the context of chapter 11 in the Corinthian correspondence as a whole makes clear. By offering a non-offensive and impressive Christ, a spirit that drives supernatural gifts out ahead of supernatural graces, and a gospel that offers life without death and comfort without affliction. The irony is evident in Paul's use of the language put up with at the end of the verse. The same Greek verb used twice in verse 1 as Paul beseeches the Corinthians to bear with him. They are slow to endure Paul, but quick to endure false teaching. Um, So false teaching is going to be very enticing. Is the point that he's making, but it's not a gospel that saves. It's, it's satanic. It's it's lies and deception, and uh, all the rest. So, um, you got anything else on this one? We, yeah. Well, he then goes on to say, and notice they didn't include this in the reading either. Verses thirteen and fourteen: For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Yep. Disguising Boy, themselves. As apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as obviously evil. No, servants of righteousness. But their end will correspond to their deeds. And the deeds being what? Preaching a false Christ, a false gospel, false spirit. Yep. And again, the only way that you can be fortified from wandering off into a false gospel um, is through having a sure word. (laughs) You know, you've got to have the truth of God. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's what true apostles, like the Apostle Paul, came to lay down for us. And we still have that word preserved for us in the scriptures Mm -hmm. so that we can compare the teaching of, to use his words again in verse 13, men who are false apostles, Deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Yeah, they look like angels of light. They look really good. Yeah, Satan they look. Lo- they look Satan, very righteous. They look very righteous. They look very they've moral. Got, they've got the yeah. example that everybody yep. ought to the follow. clean cut. Oh yeah, they look so good. Yep. I I thought it was interesting too. Uh, so David Ridges, when he tries to cover this, uh, I won't read the whole thing, but he <laughs> he does show, and I don't know why the the Joseph Smith translation at the end of verse four. Um, changes the, in the KJV, it's, you might well bear with him. Of course, the irony, right? You're going to bear with this, you know, false apostle. Um, and he changed it to me. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's incoherent. Thanks, Joseph. Um, now, Ridges comes to this, and, and uh, on his comments on verse 13 and 14, which we just covered, he says, they are trying to make you think they are true apostles of Jesus. Yep. And then he says, Paul's statement that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light in order to deceive people is a very important matter for us to understand. Uh, DNC 129.8 was given by Joseph Smith to inform members of this danger. I'll put that in the show notes. He then cites uh, some teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith that we'll get into. Here's his comment. How can we tell the difference between Satan and his evil spirits answering as angels of light and angels from God? Um, and I, I should say, I'm going <laughs> to... I'll, I'll put something in the show notes where uh, Smith says, you, you try to shake hands with them. That's that's how you can d- tell because that's mm. a great thing. Yeah. Anyway, that, that's a way to <laughs> that's a way to, to sift through that. Uh, no, here's Ridge's answer. We have the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's how. 
Furthermore, we have the gifts of the Spirit, which are given to enable us to avoid deception, as explained to DNC 46.8. This chapter is very important doctrinally. Okay. So what are some of these it's Smith important do- It's important doctrinally. You're not leaning into the doctrine at all. I know. You're saying it's based on, I guess, good feelings yep. that you know that you have because you have the gift of the Spirit. And that's the whole point. You, you can't judge this on the basis of feeling and spirits. No and you've got to judge it on the objective teaching of the apostles. And there's nothing about that there. Right. Nothing. And that's Paul's point. Yep. If it's a different Jesus, if it's a different gospel... Yep. It's the wrong spirit. Yeah. And even the, his, you know, when they're kind of uh, mocking his bodily presence, his letters, his speech, people forget in the ancient world at this time, right? They thought that those skills and your bodily impressiveness and all that was a sign of um, divine favor and righteousness. Yeah. Like they thought they could morally evaluate you by how you looked. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? Physiognomy or whatever. Um, but anyway, so Joseph Smith has sections. I won't be able to go into all of it, but just a, a few that Ridge's cites. And I forgot about one of them. And I bet because we joked about it earlier, we got to include it. But Joseph Smith, in talking about the ignorance of the nature of spirits, says, try, try the spirits, but what by? Are we to try them by the creeds of men? What preposterous folly, what sheer ignorance, what madness. Try the motions and actions of an eternal being, for I contend that all spirits are such, all spirits are eternal. By a thing that was conceived in ignorance and brought forth in folly, a cobweb of yesterday. Hey, hey, LDS listening, is this contentious? Mm -hmm. This is your guy. Yeah. And then we defend ourselves, you're contentious. Your okay. guy, like the guy, your guy. You're, yeah, like your prophet of the restoration, who might be the Holy Ghost, according to some early Mormons. Angels would hide their faces, and devils would be ashamed and insulted, and would say, Paul we know, and Jesus we know, but who are ye? This is us based on our confessional traditions. Let each man of society make a creed and try evil spirits by it, and the devil would shake his sides. It is all he would ask, all that he would desire. Yet many of them would do this, and hence many spirits are abroad in the world. So he talks about how it's, you know, one great evil is that men are ignorant of the nature of spirits, their power, their laws, their government, their intelligence, etc. And imagine that when there is anything like power, revelation, or vision manifested, it must be of God. I'm going to read this and then just let it sit there. Hence the Methodists, Presbyterians, and others frequently possess a spirit that will cause them to lie down. And during its operation, animation is frequently entirely suspended. They consider it to be the power of God and a glorious manifestation from God. A manifestation of what? Is there any intelligence communicated? Are there curtains of heaven withdrawn? Are the purposes of God developed? Have they seen and conversed with an angel? Or have the glories of the futurity burst upon their view? No. But their body has been inanimate. And the operation of their spirit suspended, and all the intelligence that can be obtained from them when they arise is a shout of glory or hallelujah or some incoherent expression, but they have had the power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. Presbyterians, you know, we're just shouting hallelujah. Like, <laughs> crazy, we're getting up, crazy rolling down aisles. I'll tell you what. <laughs> What's so ironic, if you read D. Michael Quinn's book, this is way more descriptive mm-hmm. of the Kirtland Temple yeah. than of a Presbyterian church. Yeah. I don't know who he's re- yeah. referring yeah. to. But he, I mean, there's more on discerning spirits by the power of the priesthood, and that's something I'm going to say for a little bit yeah. in terms of do they have discernment? The spirit of God, the spirit of knowledge. But let me uh, include this really quick. You'll get a chance on priesthood in Hebrews. That's true. Anyway. That's true. Uh, and 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here it is. There have also been ministering angels in the church, which were of Satan, appearing as an angel of light. Once again, this is Joseph Smith. A sister in the state of New York had a vision who said it was told her that if she would go to a certain place in the woods, an angel would appear to her. She went at the appointed time and saw a glorious personage descending, arrayed in white with sandy-colored hair. He commenced and told her to fear God and said that her husband was called to do great things, but that he must not go more than 100 miles from home or he would not return. Whereas God had called him to go to the ends of the earth, and he has, based on Joseph's opinion, and he has since been more than 1,000 miles from home and is yet alive. Many true things were spoken by this personage and many things that were false. How it may be asked, was this known to be a bad angel? By the color of the hair. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Good angels don't have sin. They don't hair. have sin. They've got, they've, that, got, they've got black hair. That, that is one of the signs that he can be known by and by his country. Isn't it weird that every image of Jesus out here, he has sandy hair? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. That's <laughs> ironic. That is ironic. And, and of course, this is what's weird is at the end, this is one of the signs that he can be known by and by his contradicting a former revelation. This is Joseph Smith who, yeah. who said, you've heard that God has always been God. I will refute that idea. Yeah. I mean, it's just, anyway, <laughs> so that's testing the spirit. Notice what's never said in all these sources. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how you test it. <laughs> <laughs> what was his hair color? That one had the wrong color hair. Yeah. Did he, was he wearing a watch, you know? I mean, it's that's rough, man, dude. It's, it's really rough. Yeah. So apparently, their gift of their gifts of the spirit, yeah, the color of their hair, yep. but not scripture. Yeah, that's yep. the point. Yeah. And if you go back to listen to the Jesus and temptation episode, you'll see Jesus set the example more than that place. But especially, yeah. I know we covered it there. Yep. It's scripture. Is yeah. A short yeah. Word. You know, I I know that we laugh because I, I think the modern listener will just listen to that. And I, I hope you realize how absurd that is in all seriousness, that the means by which you discern whether a spirit is good or evil is apparently by the color of the hair. Um, that's, that's just foolish. And, and David Ridges will cite it for this year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I hope that what you see, and I, I just hope that this can be an eye opening text for some, some people. Um, the point is that there are men like these super apostles, so-called, who will even call themselves apostles. This is in the Bible. Like the Bible is speaking to today. They will call themselves apostles. They will look good. And you will be tempted by Satan himself to follow after them. But they are leading you to a different gospel, a gospel that doesn't save. They're leading you to a different Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't save. Oh, this text is so clear. And uh, it speaks to those who are LDS right now. And I, I just, I, I'm going to go and play this. Um, yes. I think it's appropriate timing. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a portion of a, a talk that you sent me from Sherry Dew. Do you want to fill out who Sherry Dew is? Well, I, so I can post a link in the show notes, but she's been, I mean, my whole life. She probably goes back to the 70s. Yeah. In fact, I think she does mention this talk going back to the seventies, but she's, she's been a household name at least around there. Yeah. Uh, associate with Desert book, written a bunch of books. She's seen as kind of a very prominent female figure 
relative to the LDS church. And this was a, an address for the women's conference, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just take a listen. Some people get tangled up in the question, but are prophets, seers, and revelators infallible? I think that's the wrong question. A better one is, who exactly are prophets? They are the ordained holders of priesthood keys that authorize the Lord's power to be distributed throughout the earth. They may not be perfect. They are, after all, still human. Needs to be said. But they are the most perfect, inspired, unflawed leaders on earth. And their only motive is perfectly pure to help us find our way back home by pointing us to Jesus Christ. The Lord has promised that if we receive the prophet's words as if he spoke them, the gates of hell will not prevail against us, and the Lord will disperse the powers of darkness and cause heaven to shake for our good. Accepting the gift of a prophet and following his counsel unleashes a score of promises to help us deal with the turmoil of the last days. The admiration of a super apostle, yeah, so to speak. Um, yeah. And of course, if you know LDS culture, you know that the the apostles and prophets are um, adored. I mean, um, every year at uh, General Conference, one of the big points of the conference is sustaining the prophet, right? Sustaining the apostles. And everything is about trusting that these men are men who hear from God, but hear it from us now on the, on the authority of God's word and Paul's gospel that he preaches. Uh, these men are not preaching the true gospel. These men are not preaching the true Jesus. And, uh, and it doesn't matter how good they look according to Paul right here. Um, this is, this is Paul's predicted that this is going to happen, <laughs> uh, you know, by the power of the Holy spirit. Um, and it was happening in the early church. It's happening today, and it's going to continue to happen until Jesus returns and sets all things right. Men will call themselves apostles, but they are no such thing. And uh, you should only trust in the truth that has been laid out by the true apostles, uh, like Paul, who made the gospel clear. And uh, that's uh, what more could be said there. So, all right, we moving on. Yep. Last section here, and we got to be quick because we're out of time again, is uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 5 to 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 5 to 10. And uh, this says, uh, on behalf, wait, yeah, yes, I'm in the right place. <laughs> uh, on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think of me that uh, think more of me than he sees or hears from me. So I will keep from uh, being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger from Satan harassed me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, 
and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And the subtitle here in the LDS curriculum is The Savior's Grace is Sufficient to Help Us Find Strength in Our Weakness. What would you say to a friend who has prayed for relief from an infirmity but feels that this prayer is not being answered? Consider inviting class members to ponder this question as they silently read 2 Corinthians 12, 5-10. Then they could share insights from these verses that might help in the situation. They could also share experiences when, through Jesus Christ's grace or his divine power and help, they found strength and weakness. How did that experience influence their lives? Why is it more important to trust the Lord's timing? All right. What you got on this one? Yeah, well, they in the seminary manual, they it's all about enduring trials and I guess this has been a theme for today, but that even the righteous suffer difficulties. Um, they they talk about, um, let me just read this quote, the enabling power from God that allows men, and that's enabling power is how they're referring to grace, as you can see in the manual, from God that allows men and women to obtain blessings in this life and gain eternal life and exaltation after they have exercised faith, repented, and given their best effort to keep the commandments. Such divine help or strength is given through the mercy and love of God. Every mortal person needs divine grace because of Adam's fall and also because of man's weaknesses. And um, the needing of divine grace because of the fall, and then I just... Let's remember our, our buddy uh, Johnny Woodsow, what he has to say about the fall, right? That um, there was no essential sin in the fall, except that the violation of any law, whether deliberate or otherwise, is always followed by an effect. The fall of Adam and Eve was necessary, for without it there would have been no begetting on the earth of spirits with mortal bodies, and the plan proposed and confirmed in the great council would have remained inoperative. This is LDS Apostle. Adam fell that men might be. Adam and Eve, in view of the great sacrifices they made to the great plan, a reality, are the great hero and heroine of human history. And that um, the curse so-called, the curse, so they want to use fall language, so once again, what do they, what do they mean? The curse so-called pronounced by God upon Adam as he went out of the Garden of Eden, that in the sweat of his brow he should earn his bread, is possibly the greatest of all human blessings. And it is a simple extension of another great eternal law. From the beginning of the dim past when man slumbered with only feeble thought of his possible vast future, the compelling law of his progress has been the only personal effort can achieve desirable things. The price to be paid for advancement is vigorous self-effort. The active will precede every step of progress, right? So the so-called curse carries with it the magnificent promise that man, by the exercise of his powers, may subdue the earth and make it serve all his needs. So... Yeah, it's a little different. So what do they mean by fall? Well, it's it's weird because they're like you need divine grace because of Adam's fall, because but they don't call it sin, it's weakness. I, I honestly I don't know what they mean. But basically the, what they're trying to get at is that sometimes righteous people suffer, sometimes things don't work out, and you have to go through trials. So you know, whereas before it was like, do you have faith enough to be healed? And we have healing and look at our priesthood authority and all, you know, all this emphasis on miracles. Um, now it's quote unquote, do you have enough faith not to be healed? So what did uh, you learn about the Lord and what he offers to those who endure trials faithfully? And notice this, if it was faith that determined this, who has the power actually? And if, if you don't, if you have enough faith to, I guess be okay with not being healed. Wouldn't you have enough faith to be healed? I want to point out that in the Book of Mormon, I'll put these verses because I know we're in a hurry, but 
it's it says in several places, right, that miracles and healing cease because of iniquity or cease because of lack of belief or people dwindle in unbelief or depart from the right way or know not the true God whom they trust, right? Um, that these signs follow those that believe, and that's healings. And that people that doubt nothing, you know, receive that. Um, and it's just so weird to see how different that is, right? Uh, this is Joseph Smith again. Uh, Faith has been wanting not only among the heathen, but in professed Christendom also, so that tongues, healings, prophecy, and prophets and apostles, all the gifts of blessings have been wanting. And that's the basis of the restoration, was that now they have authority. Yeah. So you have authority. You have this unique priesthood authority. And now you have the nerve to put it in here that you can't heal people. It, it reminds you of what? Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, right? Yep. Same kind of false teachers who false healings, fake healings. Mm-hmm. So th- this is what's so weird is that if you look at, um, if you look at early Mormonism, and this is kind of some interesting history. This is a little tidbit as well that we can develop on this is that not only did they claim miraculous healings from being in person, but they claimed healing instruments. I mean, they claimed, you know, um, to have uh, handkerchiefs, you know, these silk bandana handkerchiefs that they could send with people to heal them. You know, hundreds of these. Um, In fact, even uh, President Lorenzo Snow used a bunch of these. And so we're talking about, I mean, it's like a magic-like use of it. So the idea is that if you, if a prophet with this priesthood authority um, has this handkerchief, for example, it's an extension of his personality, so if somebody touches a handkerchief, it's a medium for the sharing in his power. This stuff was all throughout early Mormonism. Um, right? So you have um, literally Lorenzo Snow was super active when he was an apostle and as a president of the church from 1898 to 1901, um, where you know, he even, in fact, Lorenzo Snow took one of the green aprons from the temple even and sent it to heal people several times. Yeah. Several times. Um, this idea of um, magic instruments, D. Michael Quinn says, I mean, it is similar to relics. And in fact, they are called relics several times. When, when Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith were killed, the box that they were, their bodies were brought back with uh, in, I should say, uh, the oak boxes, they were actually t- made into canes that were said to have healing power. In fact, here's a picture um, with him with one uh, you can see. Yeah. This is, and, and get wow. this, this is what uh, Hebrew C. Kimball said uh, of these uh, canes, that I shall hand it down to my heir with instructions for him to do the same, and the day will come when there will be multitudes who will be healed and blessed through the instrumentality of these canes, and the devil cannot overcome those who have them. That sounds like a pretty objective claim. The devil cannot overcome them, those who have them in consequence of their faith and confidence in the virtues therein. So, I mean, there's, I mean, there's even, um, there, there were healing objects used by Brigham Young and like remedies and, and stuff like that that we have uh, evidence continued into the 1930s. So, in fact, the, the healing oil, if you ever get a blessing for healing, 
in ministering to the sick, which is a priesthood ordinance. They will put oil that's been set apart, at least they used to, I don't, maybe that's changed too with Nelson, but uh, you know, this oil that's been set apart um, on your head and then, and then give you a blessing for healing. And then you're supposed to fill the spirit. And um, I, rem- I remember me and my brother, sometimes we would give blessings. We're like, we have this priesthood, like mm-hmm. just you can, you know, say they're healed and then wonder why it didn't happen. Yeah. It's pretty shameful. Um, but here's the thing that oil used to be used in the same way. Um, they would, in fact, we have um, this, the, the, an account of this olive oil that was consecrated to be put wherever it was um, you were injured. And in fact, even internally. So we have an account of an LDS apostle that was like drinking it to, to help um, internally. So when they changed that, when later on the church changed that, but it's still, what do you change? Why do you have to change that? Right? The, the idea that the oil was put directly on the part of the body to be healed. And the idea was, yeah, it will perform miracles. I, I could say way more. I'll put stuff in the show notes. But I, Joseph Smith, according to Parley Pratt, said this, Let the elders either obtain the power of God to heal the sick, or let them cease to um, minister the forms without the power. Cease to minister the forms without the power. That's Joseph Smith, according to Apostle Parley P. Pratt. And now they have the nerve to say, well, you know, do you have faith not to be healed? Or here at General Conference talk, I can't think of it specifically, but I remember sitting there thinking, this is so weird. General Conference, General Authority, and he's talking about how he gave a blessing and it didn't work, mm-hmm. but he felt better about it. Yep. Yeah, we, uh, we've hit on this throughout, but within the LDS worldview, and uh, this is coming through and everything that you're saying as well, um, the, the power of God is not power that explicitly only comes from God. It's power that God has gained for himself through obedience to this law, which is the true power. And so uh, God uh, over this planet has gained the maximal amount of divinity, uh, at least required for exaltation, and that enables him to apparently distribute power to certain degrees. But the goal within the LDS worldview is that each one of us, hypothetically, would gain that power from obedience to the law ourself. So ultimately, it's not power from God, at least as the end goal of what we are using or administering or whatever. It's power from this law that is above God that we've gained by our obedience to the law. And so our goal, again, in an LDS worldview is to become less and less dependent upon God as we become more God-like ourselves. We we are growing in our own self-sufficiency. So we are dependent upon God to a certain degree now, but the more that we grow in this progression, the, uh, the less we're going to need to use this power from God that's more borrowed power because we're going to have the power that we've gained from our own obedience to the law ourselves that we will use and administer. And so that's been the the healing power apparently is somewhat of a mixture of both of those things, right? Where God kind of makes up for whatever's lacking in you, but you are putting forth your own divine power in order to heal somebody who needs healing. So this whole idea of being okay to not be healed 
doesn't make sense within their system of free agency because the point is you ought to have the agency or hopefully someone else had the agency to be able to heal you. And if not, it's a lack of faith. Um, it's a lack of power. It's a lack of obedience. You haven't been obedient enough to the law in order to have the power to heal yourself um, and things like that. Otherwise, you'd be able to do it, right? And that's, that's where it doesn't make sense. Now, the, this is exactly the point that Paul is getting at uh, in, uh, in this passage in 2 Corinthians 12. The point is he doesn't have any power. Paul is weak. You know, so so the the position of the Christian is always a position of absolute weakness and absolute dependence, and of course these super apostles hanging around may want to present themselves as really strong and awesome, and Paul over here maybe looks puny and weak in comparison. Then Paul's like, that's the point. I am weak. I am weak, and in fact, I am made weaker as God puts a thorn in my flesh to keep me dependent upon him so that I would never, never boast in myself, but can only boast in the power of God that is at work in me. And uh, and so Paul is totally dependent upon the grace of God and never plans to become self-sufficient. He always plans that God's grace is the sufficiency that he needs. And of course, grace is used in, in di- different ways. There is a forgiving grace, and then there's transforming grace. Forgiving grace is grace used in the context of God's justifying work in Christ, and we see that in various texts. And then there's some texts like right here, my grace is sufficient for you, where grace is talking about God enabling and empowering those who are in Christ to walk in faithfulness. And that's a, that's the means by which he sanctifies us by the Spirit. And that's grace too. That's God's grace at work in the believer to be able to continue walking in faithfulness, even as we are totally weak and dependent upon him. Uh, but that's the whole point is to never grow out of that, but to trust him all the way through from beginning to end. Absolutely. I, um, one, one point, just because I know some listeners that might be a little more biblically savvy will say, well, the handkerchief thing, isn't that what we see happen in acts so just really quick? Because I already brought that ex- example up. I should bring this up really quick on the Bible. Uh, Acts 19.11, um, yes, it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And um, literally, it should it would read, God was, perf- from the Greek, God was performing no ordinary deeds through the hands of Paul. And uh, sometimes also, it, you know, it talks of... Uh, signs, uh, portents as well. Now, this this term for powerful deeds or extraordinary miracles, this is a term regularly used for Jesus' miracles. And then this portents and signs, if you look at the Septuagint, right, the LXX, often describes God's mighty ha- acts on behalf of Israel. If you look at Acts, Deuteronomy, Psalm 135, and Isaiah. But if you read this in context, what's the purpose of the signs and miracles of the apostles, right? Was it to satiate the desires of all the individual Christians who wanted healing. No. In fact, that's not why Jesus said he was doing it. <laughs> that, you know, uh, if you look carefully, Luke is careful not first, Luke is careful not to attribute this ability to Paul uh, himself. It is God who's working through him. And the implication, if you look at these cases, is that these miracles are authenticating his preaching. They're a unique set of miracles, right? Now, um, that being said, now we come here and we see here really the side that if you go the individual, the miracles there based on my faith, and that's a misunderstanding of faith and all that. If you go there, you're going to miss this. Then why would Paul 
boast in his suffering? Why doesn't he boast in his power? And this is, this is something to understand in its context, right? He's already talked about physical disability, inability to speak, all that. In, his, in that culture, in Roman culture, you had the course of honors, cursus honorum, right? These are, this is what you would expect of powerful people in this culture, right? Lists of achievements, uh, celebrate uh, your military achievements, your political offices, right? The year you served as consul, a public works project or whatever. That's what you expect. But that's not what Paul does. He's boasting in his suffering. He's, what does he talk about? He does a parody of the imperial boasting, right? He twists it on its head just as the power of God is seen in Christ crucified and enlists a course of shame. And what he's doing is he took his disability and showed the power of God through it, right? And I do think, you know, that even the thorn in the flesh, that word for thorn can sometimes bring it to mind uh, in the language uh, across. And so it's... It's amazing how even he's like, oh, when I ascended to the third heaven, which is not the celestial kingdom, but when I, what does he focus on? This messenger of Satan that God allowed. That the idea is that even, even through the revelation, even through this power that he's he has done, right? The miracles God has done through him. Ultimately, even the suffering those of divine origin, and has a divine purpose. Even this messenger of Satan. So it's a radical rethinking of what it means to even be disabled. Mm-hmm. It's a radical rethinking of divine power and strength and ability. And it flies in the face of, you know, the time, the quote-unquote science of the time, right? Which would, um, or once again, as I mentioned earlier, they, they would think that you can read somebody's inward character by looking at their body or their, you know, uh, you know the way, how well they speak and all right. of that. So, I... It, very different, you know. Yeah. If if you talk, if LDS journal authorities are t- spoken of when you talk to people, what do they list? Their achievements, their mm-hmm. degrees, their right. Um, yep. <laughs> so, in the, here, I guess here's my point: they are built on these claims of healing miracles. Why don't they do them? They claim unique priesthood authority. Why don't they exercise it? They want all the benefits. They want all the benefits of strong claims. Mm-hmm. They are overselling and underdelivering mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, they're just going to give you a Hallmark card talk about how you the priesthood is there to make you feel better. That is not your historic claims. And the reason why you've retreated into it is you cannot do it. But Paul, who could do it, yeah, Paul, who did heal people and didn't need to be it to be in private, away from witnesses, out in public events. He boasts in his weakness because it's God who is strong and it's God who is able. That's right. Well, we're out of time. So that's all right. <laughs> we, got, we didn't get to chapter 13, but uh, they didn't cover that in the Sunday school curriculum anyway. Yes. So um, I do think chapter 13, though, just good encouragement from verse 5 to end us here. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. That's in the Bible too. Next time we will be in Galatians, walk in the spirit and uh, then Ephesians and uh, then Philippians and Colossians and so on and so forth. We'll see you then.